This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. A quick warning. This episode has some explicit language. Hector Tobar watched the chaos of April 29th, 1992 from the Los Angeles Times' third floor newsroom. That night, a large crowd of people gathered outside the building and started pelting it with rocks. And then a little bit later on, I said, hey, am I the only one who smells fire? <laughs> you know, there's smoke, there's smoke, something's burning. And unbeknownst to me, uh, down on the first floor, a few members of this particular mob had managed to break through the windows, um, the offices down there, and had set a couple of small fires in the first floor. Tobar kept on working. That first day, he collected notes from reporters in the field and wrote a story about the LAPD's response to the acquittal of the officers who beat Rodney King. He left the newsroom around 11 p.m. Eventually, the mob went on and dispersed, and we went home, and everybody thought it was over. It was like, wow, that was a horrible night that the city went through. It's all over. And uh, we all went to bed thinking that the next morning the city would start sweeping up the glass and uh, taking stock of what had happened. The politicians would make their speeches and everything would go back to normal. The next morning's newspaper laid out the toll that April 29th had taken on Los Angeles. At least four deaths, 106 people injured, and more than 150 fires burning across the city. At first, April 30th felt like the calm after the storm. So I went into the newsroom at about 9 o'clock in the morning, and the newsroom was relatively empty, sort of like, it was sort of like a place that waking up from a hangover. Tobar and the Times started looking ahead to the city's recovery. We're going to try to do a front-page story on the aftermath of the riots and their economic impact. So your standard sort of feature story, a feature on this tragic event that happened the night before, what it means for the city of Los Angeles. And so I, we went into already reflection mode. 
Tobar got into his company car and drove towards South Central L.A., where the worst of the unrest had taken place the day before. It was sunny and about 70 degrees. It would have been another pleasant L.A. day, except for all of the smoke hanging in the air. He stopped at a bank and a grocery store, both businesses that had been hit by looters. He then drove along Slauson Avenue and started knocking on doors. One black couple spoke with him in their front yard. And the woman told me about how tough the times were, uh, you know, in, in African-American Los Angeles. She said something, she gave me a great quote. She said, it's not a recession in minority communities, it's a depression. And not long after I write down this quote, I hear sirens and, you know, alarms going off. And I look down in distance and I see these pillars of smoke rising. And so I drive in the direction of these pillars of smoke. And, um, and I can see, you know, crowds looting liquor store or something. I called into the newsroom and I said, it's starting again. It's starting. Send people out here. It's starting. That day, the second day of the riots, the 30th, I guess, is the day that I felt like society as we know it has just collapsed. That's Jim Newton, Hector Tobar's colleague at the LA Times. It definitely felt like the city had broken. I had no sense of where, how much worse it would get. But it was, I do recall feeling we were not done, that we were going to continue to grapple with this for a while. Newton was at the corner of Vermont Avenue and MLK Boulevard in South Central when he saw a mob storm into a supermarket and set it on fire. Someone pulled up with a video camera and he began to take a video of the people looting the grocery store and someone knocked on the window of his car. He rolled down the window, the person shot him and grabbed his camera. And I talked to him. Well, after he was shot, he wasn't killed. Um, and he, I remember him saying to me, I thought it would hurt worse than this. And I was like... What is happening here? <laughs> Meanwhile, Hector Tobar kept heading north, driving from South Central toward the Pico Union neighborhood near downtown. And I see one of these um, mini malls going up in flames, and there's an African-American man, older man, maybe in his 50s or 60s, and he's got a hose and he's trying to put out the fire. And a couple of young guys came up to him and said, no, you're not putting out this fire, just let it burn, let it burn. The police had been largely absent the night before. Millions of people had watched news footage of motorists being assaulted in the street, with no officers intervening. Firefighters tried and failed to contain the blazes all around the city. One fireman got shot in the face. The next day, thousands more people took to the streets. Some were unleashing their anger at the police and the justice system. Some were driven by frustration at systemic inequality in the nation's most glamorous city. And some just saw a chance to plunder while law enforcement was scrambling. It was like this feeling of like, God damn it, it really it finally fucking happened. You know, it's like the whole city's fucking exploding. This is Slow Burn. I'm your host, Joel Anderson. The carnage in L.A. didn't touch the entire city. Affluent areas like Beverly Hills and Santa Monica emerged mostly unscathed. The fires and turmoil were concentrated in poor and working-class neighborhoods on the South Side. In South Central, Black residents first turned on police, then on motorists and merchants. In Pico Union, 
Latino immigrants raged against the poverty of their neighborhood. And in Koreatown, shopkeepers took up arms to defend their stores from looters and arsonists. After a night of unprecedented civil disorder, Los Angeles had become a cautionary tale for the rest of the country. How did people fend for themselves while the city exploded with violence? How did Rodney King reckon with what was going on in the streets? And would Los Angeles come together or go down in flames? This is episode seven, Into Ashes. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. We were like a translator, mediator. We were the medium between America and uh, Koreatown. That's Jin Ho Lee. He was a reporter for Radio Korea, 1580 on the AM dial in Southern California. Uh, there were a lot of demand uh, from Korean community because uh, we reporters go out to the field, gather information in English and broadcast in Korean. By the early 90s, Los Angeles had become the largest Korean community outside Asia. Lee told me Radio Korea reached about 70% of the 1 million Koreans living in Southern California. When riots broke out on April 29th, the station stopped its regular programming and just took calls from listeners. And we have about like 10 lights uh, blinking. And uh, it, was, it was very urgent, uh, very, very urgent uh, calls for help. Like people all over Los Angeles, Korean Americans were scared. Store owners in South Central felt particularly vulnerable. The, the, the stick of dynamite had been lit already, really. That's journalist Itabari and Jerry. You heard from her earlier this season in our episode about the killing of 15-year-old Latasha Harlins. Korean store owner Soon Ja Du had shot and killed Harlins a year before the riots began. Du was sentenced to probation, not prison time. To the Black community in L.A., that sentence was an injustice comparable to the acquittal of the officers who beat Rodney King. It had also unleashed pent-up resentment against the Koreans who owned stores in Black neighborhoods. Mrs. Du, getting the sentence that she did, just added fuel to the fire. The callers to Radio Korea were worried about what was happening on April 29th and what might be coming next. They were asking us, I'm in uh, central L.A., uh, I want to go get out of this area, and how can I get out? And, you know, some family members call in, you know, we have stores, my parents are there, are they safe? Los Angeles's Korean residents quickly realized they would have to fend for themselves. Police station never responds, uh, 911 doesn't respond, so they were calling into our station. We at least uh, answer some phone calls. But there was only so much a radio station could do. In a couple of cases, people called in while they were under attack. The store owner 
was hiding in the back of the store and the rioters, you know, tried to break the, you know, metal bar and this person screaming, need help. On April 29th, Koreans in South Central found themselves and their property under attack. It seemed like Radio Korea was safe because it was located in a different part of the city, Koreatown, a commercial district of small Korean-owned businesses. But that safety didn't last. When Lee showed up at the radio station on the morning of April 30th, Koreatown was under siege. I saw flames across the street. Two buildings were burning. I saw a mailman, mail delivery man, running and some guys chasing. And one Korean old man was bleeding in his head coming inside uh, the station for help. And the station was in imminent danger, too. With the attacks in Koreatown escalating, Radio Korea told its audience to be careful. We told people not to come to Koreatown either, uh, just stay home. Some people thought Radio Korea was giving bad advice. I was so very upset about uh, all the ministers, all the church people come to Radio Korea, then ask them to go home, then pray God. Who's going to protect Koreatown? That's Ki Won Ha. He owned a supermarket in Koreatown and was president of the Korean American Chamber of Commerce. Ha thought Koreans needed to hear a different message. I had a handgun in my office, so I took a handgun to Radio Korea. So I said, you are crazy. You should stop this stupid. Why Why you everybody ask to go home? So I actually uh, said, do not go home, then protect uh, How was allowed on air? Now with the platform, he encouraged listeners to arm themselves and defend their businesses. How many years we spend, how many effort we make to Koreatown? So a lot of uh, money, a lot of time, a lot of work involved to make Koreatown. Then I don't want to lose uh, that that town in one day. Ha left the studio and went to his store, Hanum Market. He intended to follow his own advice. Ha was joined by a group of store owners who'd heeded his call to return to Koreatown. So I brought my handgun to everybody come, then start to protect my store, then we set up the, all the rice package. We parked our car too, so we set up the double barricade. Ha says that not long after they set up those barricades, about 200 people rushed into an electronic store next to his market. That store wasn't owned by Koreans. Ha said the mob busted in and started running off with merchandise. Then someone set the store on fire. Then they uh, tried to uh, come to our store after that. Then we started shooting. Some of the Koreans were stationed on the roof of Ha's market. Others were behind the barricade of rice packages, shooting in the air, above the heads of the crowd that was trying to push into Ha's store. The groups exchanged gunfire. Then accidentally, this guy uh, shot one of our people. Ha said one of the men on the roof was trying to fire at the looters when he accidentally shot one of the store's security guards. So he got killed, yeah. Whole head is gone. So he's just standing then fused less than one second, then just, yeah, on the ground without head. 
So really, really bad. Hao says most of his group was afraid to approach the body. Eventually, one of the young men used butcher paper from the store to cover up the corpse. We called the police, we called the fire department, we called everybody, but nobody want to help us. Like the night before, millions across the nation, and even overseas, watched the violence in Los Angeles with horror. It's extraordinary uh, pictures from earlier this evening when some Korean merchants came out of their shops and began to fire at looters. We don't know whether anyone was hit, but they took matters into their own hands. We have reports at the end of the day, news reports estimated that more than 100 Korean-owned stores had been burned, looted, or robbed. The South Korean consulate was attacked and forced to close. 17 time zones away, the president of South Korea weighed in. The South Korean government says the U.S. should now station special guards to protect Korean businesses. Many Koreans suffered total losses. Blacks targeted their stores with a vengeance. Some black businesses nearby, labeled as black-owned, escaped damage. But even black shop owners were struck. That's not right! That's not right what y'all doing! It was really, it made me cry a lot. That's Elaine Kim. She was a professor of Asian American studies at UC Berkeley. I never thought that somebody would burn down Koreatown. Oh, actually, the whole thing was such a disappointment to me because I had sort of had in my mind this old-fashioned idea about people of color solidarity. I was, I was kind of shocked. I felt really emotional, too. Jin Ho Lee of Radio Korea. How this be uh, America become like this? You know, most powerful and safe and, you know, places in the world. Uh, and something like this can happen. It really hurt me. And American dream is now into ashes. All those people's uh, American dream. Koreans and Korean-Americans were furious, not just at the rioters, but at the city and its police department. Many had lost their businesses, their livelihoods, their only source of income, and they felt that they had been abandoned. When the riots were over, Elaine Kim interviewed female Korean shopkeepers for a documentary. Some of them wanted to make peace with their Black customers. Others were embittered or too devastated to make sense of what they'd lived through. But they all identified a common villain. American government at all levels, from local to federal. And it would only be fair <laughs> that they receive compensation of any kind, you know, emergency, FEMA, whatever. And were very, very disappointed that, and then felt, felt not only angry uh, about that, but also at their own powerlessness in the U.S. That is, they have no voice, they have no, nobody cares, um, nobody would listen to them, and that kind of stuff. Jin Ho Lee again. We were law-abiding citizens, and we paid the taxes, and we were not protected. Yeah, nobody to turn to. Helpless. Let's take a break. When the riots began on April 29th, Rodney King was living in Studio City an affluent neighborhood about 20 miles north of south-central L.A. At first, the uprising gave him a feeling of satisfaction. In his autobiography, King wrote, 
I am not ashamed to admit that for the first few hours, before I heard about anyone getting killed or even hurt yet, I felt a certain vindication. Later that evening, family and friends showed up with gifts. They brought bottles of Jack Daniels, food, and disposable diapers. Yeah, I mean, at that time, you know, it's like everybody looting, you know, you, hey, we got a chance to get some shit on wholesale, you know, that type of thing, you know, yeah. That's Johnny Kelly, one of Rodney King's best friends. You know, I couldn't wait for the man to come by, you know, hey, you got some what, some Gucci jeans, okay. <laughs> so, hey, that was the life at the time that we was living, you know. You look back, you look back on life and you'd be like, hey, man, that wasn't cool. But at the same time, we was kids, we didn't know no better, we didn't give a damn, you know, it's what, we, it's what we're doing. King was curious about what was being done in his name. So he pulled on the wig he used to keep from being recognized and drove towards South Central. A couple blocks shy of Normandy Avenue, he stopped. I sensed that terrible presence of hatred that I felt the night of the beating, he wrote. There were sounds like I'd never heard before, like evil erupting. Later that night, King saw news footage of truck driver Reginald Denny getting beaten. It destroyed me, King wrote. It affected him that people was getting hurt. It affected him that the buildings was being burnt. But he, he knew it was all for him, but at the same time, he didn't want to see that. By the next day, April 30th, people had started to notice that King hadn't been seen in public or made a statement. Rodney King, the motorist whose beating touched all of this off originally, is keeping a low profile tonight, obviously not wanting to be part of the violent aftermath. Tom? King's civil attorney, Steve Lerman, gave him a call on the morning of May 1st. I said, Glenn, you're going to say something because there's people out there screaming Rodney King. And there's burning, there's looting, there's all kinds of mayhem. By your silence, you condone what they're doing. So you've got to say something. King's mother, Odessa, was a devout Jehovah's Witness who was opposed to political statements of any kind. After the beating, she had warned him against using his platform to draw attention to police brutality. Now she once again urged him to stay quiet. She told her son, you had your time in the spotlight and it done you no good. King dreaded the thought of addressing the public. A high school dropout, he had never been a great talker. Now the beating had left him with brain damage, making it even harder for him to communicate. But he thought his mother was wrong. He knew he had to say something. He was like, cousin, they want me to, they want me to say a speech. They're saying that I'm promoting this behavior because I haven't said anything. And he was very upset. That's on Tricia Averett, Rodney King's cousin. And he was like, you know, I, I, I don't know what to say. What did they want? What should I say? I said, you should only say what truly comes from your heart and do not try to write a, read any speech that anyone has prepared for you. Lerman called for a news conference later that afternoon in Beverly Hills, far from the unrest. He then went to meet King at his apartment. I said, now it's not time to talk anymore about what you're going to say. It's time for us to go to wardrobe. So we walked over to this apartment closet, and I'm looking at a couple of suits that I'd bought him. I said, oh, no, no, no. We don't want to have you out there in an expensive suit. I said, hey, Glenn, you remember the TV show, uh, uh, Mr. Rogers? He said, that kitty show. I said, yeah, you're going to put on Mr. Rogers' sweater. And so I noticed a pale blue cardigan that I'd, we'd gotten him a couple of weeks ago. I said, now, this is going to smooth out those big shoulders. He's a big man and a nice white shirt, a dark tie. And so he was appropriately groomed for his show. 
When King and Lerman arrived for the press conference in Beverly Hills, they were greeted by a large crowd. It was King's first public appearance in 14 months. And in just a few minutes, Rodney King is scheduled to speak out publicly for the first time since the jury's verdict. When he does, we'll bring it to you live here on Early Prime. And he will be- Everybody showed up, including helicopters. And the whole back part of the building at Wilshire and Doheny in Beverly Hills was swarming with media. I want to thank you all for coming. That's Lerman. This city can't be an example of a society out of control. The time for healing is upon us. Rodney King has prepared a very brief statement. I want to again emphasize- King says Lerman had handed him a four-page script, but he decided to do his own thing. He wrote in his autobiography, I took one look at those four pages and said, fuck that. I was going to speak my own words. In video from the event, the camera is focused tightly on Rodney King. He looks and sounds nervous, his voice cracking. Uh-huh. People, I, um, I just, I just want to say, you know, can we, can we all get along? Can we, can we get along? Um, can we all get along? I mean, it was just a spark of genius. That is a spontaneous exclamation that came from that man. And the words are immortal. He didn't blame the white cops. He didn't blame the society, the racist society. He didn't blame the LAPD. None of that. It was like putting warm mayonnaise on a bun. But not everyone likes warm mayonnaise. Horrible. Absolutely horrible. That's Dermot Givens. He was a law student and community organizer in South Central. He blames Lerman for the mildness of King's remarks. He made him look like a complete idiot. Can't we all just get along? For the past year, Thousands of Black people had marched and protested on King's behalf. They were gutted when the officers who beat him got off. And then they stormed into the streets in his name. To ask them to stop. To call for peace. For many Black Angelinos, it felt like a betrayal. We get our ass beat and we can't be mad? (laughs) Oh, Massa! Y'all just really need to understand. <laughs> Y'all didn't need to beat me so bad. Oh, <laughs> but I forgive you. Let's pray. <laughs> Come on. King's words became a national punchline. See, it's not whether you win or lose, but is it over when the fat lady sings? <laughs> Can't we all just get along? <laughs> On Tricia Averett. It came from his heart. He meant what he said. And then people made mockery of him. And that is what embarrassed him. Because that whole little, that whole saying, can we get along, was, it was in the comedy rooms. It was, it was just everywhere. And it was, it was embarrassing for him. That handful of anguish words would be all anyone remembered. But at that press conference, King continued speaking extemporaneously for another two minutes. Listening to that speech now, it feels more pitiful than embarrassing. Rodney King was doing his best to meet the moment, but he just wasn't equipped to do it. We'll we'll get our justice. Um, They've won the battle, but they haven't won the war. We'll have our day in court, and that's all we want. And just, uh, I I love, you know, I'm, 
I'm neutral. I love every. I love people of color. You know, I'm. I'm not a. I'm not like they. Picking me out. Picking me out to be. Um. In his autobiography, King said, "Every word I spoke was as true as I could make it, and came right out of a deep place in my heart and soul." There was nothing but the best intentions behind everything I said. King also realized that his words could only do so much. He wrote, I wish I could say that I was so good at speaking that everybody listened and everything got peaceful and quiet. But reality is a bitch, and it took a while. Let's take a break. Mike Hernandez was the L.A. City Council member representing the 1st District, a collection of neighborhoods north and northwest of downtown. The district was primarily Latino, uh, no questions about it. Many of his constituents were recent immigrants from Mexico and Central America. The first night of the riots, Mike Hernandez's district was mostly spared. The most viscerally striking moments of the unrest began in Black neighborhoods. It was a response to a specific event that crystallized the way the criminal justice system treated Black people. But Los Angeles was home to millions of people who were not Black, many of whom were living in poverty and legal jeopardy in one of the world's richest cities. Once civil order in Los Angeles had collapsed, all those people had their own reasons to take to the streets. This was a civil unrest based on economic realities. Oh, wow. So you knew that instinctively then. You knew that it wasn't anger at the cops, you thought. No, no, no. I kept on saying our problem is we had a tale of two cities. We had a city that was doing very well and a city that was everybody pretended wasn't there. This is a time when the city wasn't producing as much opportunity as it did, let's say, 20 years ago when I was growing up. L.A. Times reporter Hector Tobar. Almost every immigrant person you meet of a certain age has memories of just living homeless for a while, I had people sleeping in their cars or people living in houses with 12 other immigrants and, you know, four or five to a bedroom. The people in those communities, were they generally aware of the prosperity being enjoyed in other parts of town compared to where they were? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely, because your average resident, your average Latina resident of South Central Los Angeles had a job in another part of the city where she was going to see the affluence of the city. She would work at a house in Beverly Hills or in Santa Monica. And every day would be a reminder of the insult of the city's sociology, you know, the insult of its class structure. Living that mindfuck of going back and forth, right, between the economic poles of the city. On April 30th, Riots and fires broke out across Mike Hernandez's district. The neighborhood of Pico Union, one of the densest and poorest in the city, was hit especially hard. A discount appliance store, a pupuseria, and a jewelry store were looted and destroyed. Hector Tobar witnessed some of that destruction. Seeing people with mattresses on top of their cars that they had looted from some mattress store, and people returning with, like, you know, boxes filled with stuff. It was the moment in which the shiny objects behind the store window would tempt the poor people of L.A. no longer. 
right? Because they could just go in and grab them. And so you had the mass of recently arrived immigrants or people who had been in the country for 10 years, no hope of ever getting, uh, becoming documented citizens, just letting their frustrations out. You know what? You think of us as the lowest of the low and you know what? That's what we are. We're going to take whatever we want today. 51% of the people charged with crimes during the riots were Latino. But Latinos were also disproportionately victims of violence and of property damage. It's estimated that about a third of the businesses destroyed during the riots were owned by Latino people. From South Central to Pico Union to Koreatown, people who wanted to see order restored in their neighborhoods felt dismayed. As violence and looting flared up, the police, typically an intrusive presence in the poorer parts of L.A., were conspicuous by their absence. The whole city was abandoned by the police. And that was almost policy. It was basically Daryl Gates giving the finger to the rest of the city and saying, you know what? You guys think that we're the enemy? Fuck you. Jim Newton. I don't think that Gates specifically made plans to deliberately expose the city to danger. That said, <laughs> was he churlish? Was he thin-skinned? Was he really angry uh, in those days? Yes, yes, yes. And so I, I think there, there was an I told you so in all of this uh, that said, if you, if you don't let us do our jobs and respond in, a, in an aggressive paramilitary way to an edgy city, that the cork will just blow at any moment. I mean, that's kind of the subtext of his style of leadership, right? And lo and behold, the cork did blow. So I'd be willing to bet that there was some part of him that felt that that proved his point. By May 1st, thousands of National Guardsmen had stepped in to provide much-needed reinforcements to the LAPD. A city that had risen up against its police department was now, effectively, a police state. I remember being at the corner of 3rd and Vermont, where I had recently lived. I had lived there a few months earlier and just seeing the army taking over the parking lot of this grocery store. And, you know, it was just, it was a scene from another country, from another era of American history. And just seeing that, that to me really, that was frightening. But also, I think that there was a certain sector of the city that was grateful. Grateful that's, that someone was taking some steps to restore order in the city because the city was exhausted. It did feel to me like the guards' presence is what began to restore order. But by then, of course, so much damage had been done. In the end, nearly 60 people were killed in Los Angeles between April 29th and May 3rd, when the rioting finally stopped. The vast majority of them were killed in L.A.'s South Side and some of the city's poorest neighborhoods. In Del Rey, a 24-year-old white man died after falling through the roof of a check-cashing store while trying to put out a fire. In Lenox, a 15-year-old Latino boy was shot by a police officer who was trying to stop looters running away from a jewelry store. In South Park, a 56-year-old Black woman was rushing to deliver food to a friend before curfew when her car was hit by a van. You know, a lot of people who did absolutely nothing wrong died for no reason. Um, for every one of those people who died, there's a whole family. There's family and friends and community who have never gotten over that. 
and let's just say for the sake of argument that 200 people are affected by each of those deaths. That is thousands of people whose lives turned on those days. And that doesn't even count people who are arrested or injured or, you know, lost homes or lost livelihoods. It's overwhelmingly sad to think about how much damage was done in those days and that did not need to happen. As the fever broke in L.A., people began to notice just how much damage had been done. Those immediate days and weeks afterward, it felt like a ruin. And and I kind of, I also recall a sort of bewildered look on people's faces. There was a sort of sense of like, what just happened here? It was awful. Uh, and awful in a way that's, I mean, I've covered natural disasters in which people have died, and that's awful, of course. Um, but you don't have the same sense of guilt and bewilderment and sadness around it. It's more just a fluke of nature. This was not a fluke of nature. This was a human experience. It leaves you with a really bad feeling about humanity and about society. As the city cleaned itself up, Hector Tobar went back to South Central. He talked with a couple who had looted a liquor store in their own neighborhood. And they described how, you know, in the moment, the heat of the moment, they had gone in there and looted along with everybody else, looted the liquor store, and how they felt really terrible. And because they were friends with the owner, with the Korean owner, they knew him. So they felt they needed to sort of do a penance. So they helped him clean up a little bit. And so, yeah, I think the entire city felt that way. It was like, wait, what happened? You know, a lot of times when you're in a relationship, you say really horrible things to each other. And then you, the next day, you feel the need to sort of say something nice and do something nice. And it was that, that same sort of feeling throughout the city of like, I just did something really horrible. Now let me do something nice. Let's clean up. Let's show the better side of ourselves. When the violence was over and the fires had been extinguished, Los Angeles had almost as many needs as it had people. Repairing a city this big and this broken would require a massive collective effort. But who could be trusted after such a wide-ranging, all-encompassing failure? That's next week on the season finale of Slow Burn. Slowburn is a production of Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. You can sign up for Slate Plus to listen to the show without ads, and you'll get a bonus episode each week of the season with behind-the-scenes stories and tape that got cut from the show. And in this week's bonus episode, you'll be hearing from Hector Tobar and Jin Ho Lee. One way to sign up for Slate Plus is directly through your Apple Podcast app. Just go to apple.co slash slowburn. We couldn't make Slow Burn without the support of Slate Plus. So please, sign up if you can. Head over to apple.co slash slowburn. Slow Burn is produced by Jason DeLeon, Ethan Brooks, Sophie Summergrad, Jasmine Ellis, and me, Joel Anderson. Editorial direction by Josh Levine and Gabriel Roth. Artwork is by Jim Cook. Our theme song was composed by Don Will. Mixing by Merrick Jacob. Special thanks to Hector Tobar, whose novel, The Tattooed Soldier, was inspired by some of the events during the riots and is available anywhere you buy books. Additional thanks to Michelle Jang, Ho Jun Yu, Stan Mizrahi, Janae Desmond Harris, Amber Smith, Bill Carey, Meredith Moran, Seth Brown, Rachel Strom, 
Chow Tu, Derek Johnson, Asha Saluja, and Katie Rayford. Thanks for listening.